0: 11 verses 1 to 18. Now, the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order I was in the city of Joppa praying. And in a trance, I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. And looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, "Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance
1: that leads to life." This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Please join me as we pray together. O oh Lord, I pray, we pray that the, the, the um, that you would enlighten the eyes of our heart that we could see with our heart and soul what is the hope to which you've called us, the great treasure it is to be part of your people, and the great immeasurable power that exists for those who believe you. Would you use that power right now to do your mighty, gracious work in our midst? And we'll trust you for that. In Christ's name, amen. One of the um, programs, lack of a better word, that we have been running this year, some of you have heard about it, is called Discipleship Catalyst, and it's a way for us to come together and study aspects of following Jesus Christ. And we've had ones on theology and discipleship and spiritual friendship And one of our topics this past week was the idea of cross-cultural or intercultural discipleship. How does being this global ethnic family of God, how do we relate and grow together? And Mazere, who is uh, on staff with us and heads up that ministry, she started uh, our time by saying, "While while we may meet Christ in our culture, To follow him, we actually have to cross to other cultures. Though we might meet Christ in our own culture, if we're going to follow him, it'll require moving across other cultures. And that's exactly the point of this passage. Exactly what is being taught to us today. God is calling a young, largely Mm -hmm. Jewish church to follow him into the nations into uh the great beyond and this wasn't a surprise jesus had said to them after he had risen he said now the holy spirit the spirit of god the third person of the christian godhead he is going to come and be with you after i rise and he's not just going to indwell you and be the presence of the father and the son and, and transform you but He's going to empower you on a mission, and that mission is that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And this was the outworking of God's plan that went way back to Abraham, the forefathers, where God said, I'm going to make a people of all nations. And yet, we find that the young church is slow hesitant, even resistant to move on that mission. But the good news is, Jesus prevails. Jesus builds his church. And so he sends them on their way. And and what we see is they face obstacles and they find opportunity. And so that's what I want us to look together. The obstacles and the opportunity as we think about uh, being in every culture family of God. Now, each of us has a cultural identity here, and it's made up of many different things, right? Our birthplace, our language, our religion, the cuisine and food that we like, the music and literature, many things comprise our identity. And those identities end up providing a sense of belonging for us, a sense of security, even a sense of confidence. The early Jewish church had their tradition and culture, right? Largely formed by the faith, the Hebrew faith that they had carried through. And this this, uh, involved many things, as it does us. It involved music. It involved certain ways that they related to people and did hospitality, Worship, their view of politics, after Jesus raises from the dead, the first thing they ask him is, when are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Their mindset was, the Messiah will come and Israel will be in a place of political dominance. And also, which foods they should eat or shouldn't eat. Now, unlike us, where we tend to make that determination by what would give me an allergy, right, or, or, or how, I, you know, how I want to look and I don't want to gain weight, or whatever it would be, Not usually religious significance. Back then, God was using food to teach an object lesson, right? One theologian puts it this way. The Jewish ceremonial laws of what was a clean or unclean food, and in that passage, those uh, animals that were mentioned were deemed unclean. God didn't want Israelites to eat that food. He says that the unclean foods and garments and practices were God's visual aid to demonstrate that people were sinful, that they could not just come into God's presence, that he was a holy God, and that people needed to keep separated from sin and evil. So when God tells them not to eat certain foods, one, maybe he was just saving them from eating some nasty stuff. You know, I I haven't eaten a lot of reptiles in my life. Maybe there's some, some good reptiles, but maybe, you know, But there was some good stuff on that list too. Why was he doing that? Because he was trying to teach them this idea, right? It was an object lesson. Just like we use object lessons. And the Jewish leaders took this very seriously. They took God's commandments and his laws very seriously. And to to protect the people from violating those things, they reasoned, that it would make sense, it would be prudent for us to have other customs and traditions around those commandments so people wouldn't violate it. So, illustration. The the CDC suggests certain protocols or controls for those that work around hazardous materials. There's different layers of this. In fact, they would refer these things as a hierarchy of controls. One would be elimination. That is substituting something safer for something's unsafe. Maybe a plant-based solvent, or rather a plant-based thing instead of a solvent-based thing. Or maybe one of the layers would be engineering, the idea there should be barriers in ventilation. Or equipment, safety glasses, earplugs. Administrative, how, how, much, uh, how often someone can actually be around hazardous materials, right? These controls put into place. Well, the religious leaders had their version of that. They created certain controls to say, you know, how often or near you could get to breaking one of these commandments. But the problem was, as things grew and grew, that hierarchy of controls became one and the same thing. Meaning, the traditions and customs began to take on the same authority as the command of God. And many of Jesus' battles and arguments with religious leaders were about that very thing, the authority. And so we actually see this evidence in the text. Now, we, we had chapter 11 where Peter is giving the report of chapter 10. We had it as a summary. And in that, he tells us he had entered this house. The man's name was Cornelius, who was a Gentile. But if we go into chapter 10, we get more information. When Peter entered that house, he said this to the Gentiles there. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit any one of other nation. And this is what the circumcision party said to him. But the fact of the matter, actually, according to the Bible, it wasn't unlawful. There was no way prescribed that they couldn't associate with other. It was the tradition and custom that Peter was referring to. But it had taken, right, as part of his cultural identity in the years, it had taken on a place of authority where even the most dedicated, sincere follower of Jesus struggled to distinguish between the tradition and the custom and the culture and the command of God. He struggled with that these things had been so formative in his life, it was tough to distinguish what was divine and what was man-made. We have the same challenge, right? Unless we think we're better than the apostles. We we have the same challenge. Let let, let me give you a scenario here. Imagine uh, two children growing up in two different homes. Um, Child one Uh, Picture them on their daddy's knee or their mama's lap. Uh, Next to daddy or mama is a Bible right here. And the other side is a uh, news outlet that is progressive or liberal. And then in front of them is television where they're watching entertainment uh, that they deem that is good and right and true and beautiful. In the other household... You've got uh, this child sitting on mommy's lap or daddy's knee. There's a Bible on one side. On the other side, there's a conservative media outlet. Some sort, you know, pick pick whatever newspaper that would be. And then on the TV, there's entertainment and things they would deem good and true and right according to their culture. Each of them have this reinforced by their own people they hang out with their community, but also their church. And they grow up. And as they grow up, it's very hard, right, to distinguish which is my faith and which is my spiritual heritage and what is the culture that I grew up with. We are that child, all of us, okay? All of us have that experience in some way. Let me give you some, um, you know, let me give you some... Sort of examples in the wider church. Some of these are smaller examples. You know, no one's ever said this to me in this congregation, but you'll hear this. Uh, One of the things that uh, Christian churches emphasize is what's called expositional preaching. Right? It's the idea that when preaching is done, it should be based on the text, the scripture. The ideas ought to come from the scripture. Now, there are some people that believe that when those sermons are given, it should be line by line, verse by verse. And they feel that very strongly. There are other people that would believe that uh, it ought to actually have conversation with both the Old Testament and the New Testament if it's going to be faithful. And there are some people that come from a tradition that say, unless it's coming from this translation of the Bible, it's suspect. So what do we have here? We have, I would say, a biblical principle that God's word should be unfolded and untaught, and then you have applications and inferences. But what ought to be is, right, as we move into the inferences and applications we have, it ought to be downgraded with authority. But the problem is, sometimes we just keep it at the same authority. The inference in the application is the very same thing as the law or the commandment. I'll give you another example. Next week, we will recognize the importance of advocating for the unborn. Sanctity of human life Sunday. Is that a biblical, uh, scriptural position? I would say absolutely. It can be defended from scripture. But you're going to have some Christians that would reason from that an in inference. Therefore, Christians should not use contraception. Right? This is not a small debate or Christians shouldn't use any sort of birth control. And so what you have is you have a biblical principle again, but as we move to application and inference, we should be lowering the conviction, lowering the authority that we subscribe to it. And there's many, many, many different issues. Now, what you see here, I think, is a model. Through Peter. Because we, we, we end up on these two different extremes. One is the one side that says, listen, we're so culturally conditioned. Our cultures have so impacted us. everything's just going to be relative. Don't even try. Don't even try to say that God's word has this. On the other hand, you're going to have people that go, you know, essentially my position and view is kind of immune from that cultural stuff. I can just kind of move on. Neither one of those, I think, is reflected in this passage. What we find in Peter is actually a model of humble self-awareness. In this life, that is what we're going for. Can I be a self-aware Christian with respect to my cultural identity? So, Two ways I think this happens. One is by God's revelation and word and scripture. The Christian faith, if you're not someone that buys into the Christian faith, you're just visiting, the Christian faith is one of a few religions that believe revelation. They believe this idea that God exists, he's personal, and he has spoken and revealed himself, and he has the ability to speak and actually get his message through. So it's a religion of revelation. And in here we find that what happens, Peter has the tradition of the commandment, but the voice of the Lord speaks to him, rise and eat and says, don't call what God has called clean, common. He needs the actual word of God shining a light on his traditions. So we live in a city where people sometimes have yard signs, right? Especially on Capitol Hill. In the yard sign, some of them will say, in this house, we believe. If you want to know what our values are, this is what they are. Well, whether we have a yard sign or not, we all have a yard sign, right? And so a good exercise would be, even, and I would say with your kids, sit down and say, what, what do we as a family believe? What, what are our values? And as we do that, then ask ourselves, where can I actually go to the Bible and say, these are based on those very things? Or do I find, you know, actually, this one is kind of like a few steps away, and then ask myself, "How, how tightly do I hold to this thing, or my convictions? You know, what are you most passionate about, your view of freedom? your view of justice, your view of how the economy ought to work, your view of how worship ought to work. Notice it just doesn't happen without without God's word for Peter. In fact, we'll see in a moment, I mean, how much effort it takes. But that's not just it. It isn't just Peter alone with his Bible. See, that's the modern tendency. I'll just get with my Bible, and that way I'll make sure my values and convictions are really coming from God's word. Peter needs more than that. He actually needs God's people to be self-aware, right? He needs a message from an angel that's actually going to come from the Gentiles. He's going to need this Gentile community. He's going to need to witness God's spirit at work and alive in them. In fact, we're told he can't even get done with his sermon. Probably disappointed, probably really had a good one. You know, that's every preacher's fear. Like right now, the Holy Spirit would fall in such a way that there'd be great work, but I couldn't finish my sermon, <laughs> right? But the reason theologians say likely, God likely did this, he wanted it to be so clear that his spirit was on the Gentiles, that they were full members, they were being brought into the kingdom. And so as you and I weigh our values and our culture and what we believe, we need more than just about, we need a community But also, I would say we need a community of people of diverse cultures. Peter did. He wasn't going to get that message from his culture. When he moved back, his group said, hey, why are you doing that? Why didn't you uphold the tradition? This is one of the benefits uh, we just experienced, I would say. Our session, our elders, took a mid-year overnight retreat yesterday. And at the end of it, one of our elders raised the question and said, You know, let's talk a little bit about our cross cultural vision. How are we doing there? Are we progressing? What's realistic? What's success? We got into a great discussion. And there was such value to hear from everybody, but especially to hear from Mike and from Andrew. When they spoke, we were all like, That was really helpful. I wouldn't have come up with that thought without, you know, a brother coming from a different cultural background and faith. Sharing theology, but more than that. But let me say this. It takes effort. Peter needed, and this is Peter, right, the lead apostle. This is the one that confesses. He gets before anybody else. You are Jesus. You're the son of God. Peter needs, count it, three visions. The same vision, three visions: a message from an angel, messengers, the direct voice of God, and then the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and even then, some years later, he slips back. Right? The Apostle Paul has to like call him on it and go, "You're falling way back." That ought to, I think that means two things. One, it ought to impress on all of us like the effort that God's calling us to engage, you know, one of the reasons we have a CQ ministry is not just because it's nice to have CQ, cultural intelligence, because it's just a way to keep up with the world, or it's a way to have a nice little elective. It's this idea that we need help. We need times where we can sit down and ask questions, and ask questions in a way where we're not afraid or walking on eggs or feel ashamed. Because guess what? It's not easy for any of us. It wasn't easy for the early church. If you ever feel like, you know, and this is where I think sometimes, you know, our culture, and I, and I tend to be, you know, I, I'm an idealistic guy. That's one of my strength finders. Well, actually, it's not. That's not a strength finder. Beth is like, Glenn, don't mess up what I do for a living. <laughs> I'm just kind of positivity, positivity. So, you know. I said to the elders, you know, because they were saying, yeah, it's good, you know, to, 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 to sort of remind each other, this is not an easy thing because, you know, I get excited about the, you know, I'll get excited at the end. And as I do, you can be like, he's getting excited about that. And some of you will be, is that excitement? You know, but. <laughs> but the other part is patience and long-suffering, right? Patience and long-suffering. We need that too. Uh, I heard a quote, I'm part of this pastors fellowship which is interdenominational uh interracial it's based in the dmv and they brought a speaker in a guy named albert tate who has uh just read a book and he said this i was watching the video um where we don't share convictions of people we typically don't extend compassion right which is the very place we have to go, you know, where I feel the strongest conviction that's gonna work on. All right, but let me move on to the opportunity so we can close this out. When Jesus violated the traditions and the authority of the law, the religious leaders didn't just didn't feel threatened that he was compromising the authority of God. It wasn't just authority. It was their security, right? Because as I said, all of us derive confidence, security, a sense of belonging from culture and tradition. They certainly did. In fact, in their culture and tradition, Jesus had to be just really blunt about this and said, woe to you because, you know, the system here for you affords you a place of honor. You love the chief seats. You love the flowing robes. You love the way you're greeted in the marketplace. You love the supremacy that you enjoy. You love the power that you got, even the money that you're getting from it. And their cultural tradition system, and it, you know, that's what it was built upon. And Jesus began to shake that thing. It wasn't just, he's compromising God's word. It was like, he's messing with my everything. And so, again, let's not think we're even better than pharisees they weren't just hypocrites they were sincere people in their faith if that thing is going to be removed from us we have to have something more secure in its place and the first thing is divine acceptance god is trying god doesn't try to do anything god is God is conveying to Peter the basis of his acceptance and security and confidence is not his culture and adherence to those laws. The basis of his sense of cleanness and righteousness is Christ. It's Jesus. And Jesus said as much to him. Remember when Jesus was washing feet? And Peter said, well, wash all of me. And he said, Peter, you're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. The gospel of salvation, the word that he was told to come and preach to Cornelius. I will give him a message, Cornelius, by which you can be saved. And then Peter says, God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. He's learning. uh, Let me finish this thought. And it also shows us that Cornelius, even as, this is how he's described, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to poor people and prayed continually to God. He still needed saved. He wasn't clean. That's a great offense in our modern culture for Washington do-gooders. He wasn't clean. None of us have lived up to the law of love even he didn't. But there was a way for him to have confidence. It was this word of the grace that comes from Jesus. So every six weeks or so, I talk to our staff counselors, just checking in with them. No, they don't tell me about you. and that's not a personal, it's not that, okay. We're just sort of like touching base on praying. And, and uh, one of those, you hear me referred to many times, Jackie Griffith who's a mentor and an older sister. And, and I, I forget what I was, uh, you know, I, it, I probably use it as free counseling. That's not right. You know, it's just kind of, you know, how are you, Glenn? Oh, I, I, no, I don't want to, you know, I, I don't want to, well, now that you asked, you know, go on. But, you know, this, this week she, she uh, told me how much the Heidelberg Catechism had meant to her. You know, that's a catechism written a long time ago. These two questions, and I ended up bringing them to the elders' retreat. Listen to this, because it gets to this idea of the basis of acceptance. The question is, how are you righteous or clean or accepted before God? You know, is it your world of customs and tradition, blah, blah, blah. Listen to what it says. Even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments of never having kept any of them, and still being inclined toward evil, even though all those things, nevertheless, without any merit of my own, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction. That that word was really sticking in my mind. Do I believe God is satisfied with me? says he is. Perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ is if... This is it, as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner and as if I had been perfectly obedient as Jesus was for me. All I have to do is accept this gift and believe it. No other faith, no other worldview system teaches that. I'm not trying to boast. I will boast in the gospel. I will boast in that. Why has it moved across every tribe, tongue, and nation? Because it's an acceptance that says, you don't need to come through my culture and jump through my hoops and live to that. You are accepted. You are a full member in the family of God. And it's only as you and I lean into that more and more that we can begin to wear our culture more lightly and even say, you know, I, think I want to try on some of your clothes. You see this in the Apostle Paul, the great preacher of grace where he's able to say, I will become like a Greek to reach the Greeks. I'm not so holding on to whatever it is, my holidays and the way I see life and, you know, even my, you know, my, forget it, whatever it is, fill in the blank, my cultural views. So that's number one, divine acceptance. Number two is Peter becomes a divine bridge. He becomes a bridge, right? And he needs to be. He's going to come back and testify. And God gave some other witnesses. He went with six others. And he goes back into this leadership core of the church upon whom the mission will depend. Someone has said two things had to happen for the, for the gospel to go global. The apostle Paul had to get converted, and Peter had to get culturally converted. You know, Paul had to get saved, Peter had to learn this lesson. He becomes a bridge whereby he can foster unity. You know, the guy that would have been, like, the opponent becomes, and they trusted that. And it, it just made me think about uh, one particular area, one application, then we'll get to the last point. Um, I was thinking about, and I find myself mentioning it more and more, I don't know, why. The, the, just the, the summer of unrest many of us went through, right? The, the summer of protests and riots, if you were here. And and there would tend to be two poles that people would gravitate toward, and and it would happen in the church too, right? The one was condemning destruction and riots, and the other was condemning, um, basically saying, uh, you're so focused on this smaller injustice instead of the bigger injustice that's happening, right? Those are the two things. A lot of division there. But, you know, those weren't new. Actually, in the civil rights movement, those very, that same issue came up. And uh, Martin Luther King addressed it, I think, in a wise way, and I think his faith led him that way. Listen to what he said. I would be the first to say that I'm still committed to militant, powerful, massive nonviolence as the most potent weapon in grappling with the problem. I'm absolved, convinced that a riot merely intensifies the fears of the white community while relieving their guilt. So on the one hand, he's saying, yeah, I stand and say, no, destruction of the property and, you know, that sort of rioting isn't the way to go. It's not what God is calling us to. But he doesn't just stop there. He then goes, but it's not enough for me to stand before you tonight and condemn riots. It would be morally irresponsible for me to do that without at the same time condemning the contingent intolerable conditions that exist in our society. These conditions are the things that cause individuals to feel that they have no other alternative than to engage in violent rebellions to get attention. And I would say that's not just true of what happened in America. You can look at the industrial movement, you can look at many movements across cultures and histories, that's true. And then he ends and says, and I must say tonight that a riot is the language of the unheard. But do you see, I, I, other than he, he, was, he was a bridge. He was a bridge for people that were saying, you know, I'm bothered by that. That's not right. And those riots affected, you know, uh, and destruction affected not just white people's stuff, right? Met different people of color, people's stuff. But at the same time, he said, to, you know, to sit there and just major on that and not, not think about the greater injustices that are provoking people, so my point is this, and and Paul had a version something of this, where Paul was accused as he began to preach to the Gentiles and the nations, the Jewish community would say, "You're denigrating our heritage." I was just reading this in Romans. You're denigrating our heritage, and he would say, he would he poses the uh, question. They're asking him, "What advantages then to be Jewish?" The way you're putting it, if the Gentiles are in and we've got sin, what advantage? And Paul goes on to say, no, there's many advantages to your culture. And we could say that about every culture. There are many beautiful things, good things about your culture. But at the same time, God has elevated this goodness and beauty in the Gentiles that you need to pay attention to and you need to see. And that leads to our last point. We talk about divine acceptance, divine bridge, but just divine glory. And this, this might be the part of the text I like the most. After Peter reported, it said, When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. There's sometimes when you see something so stunning and different and beautiful, You just can't, you're speechless. It's just like out of our realm of how we would imagine. And that's what I so pray that God will do in this community. Jesus will do things by which, not just in this area of cultural love, he will do things by which there can be no explanation other than him. And we find ourselves dumbfounded before this beautiful, this beautiful community. They got a glimpse of what, right, our dear friend Pastor Irwin would call the beautiful community. They got a glimpse of where we're going. They got a glimpse of the every tribe, every tongue, every nation, the great pan-ethnic bride that comes down, the great feast together, the mutual love, the mutual appreciation, and each of the cultures were told in the book of Revelation, bringing their glory, their respective glory of their culture into the city of God. They got a glimpse of that. I get a glimpse of it here too. I pray anybody that comes through the door gets a glimpse of it and goes, that's what I want. That's what I need. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for uh, the book of Acts. We thank you for your story. We thank you that, Jesus, you're still working. We're, we're very much, there's still a story being written at Grace Downtown. There's a book still being written, and we are part of it. Would you uh, make it a story that's in line with your gospel? In Christ's name, for his sake, amen.